Good morning. Uh, will you join me one more time in prayer? Father, thanks for the opportunity we have to come and hear your word. We pray that your spirit would inhabit the speaker and the listener and that you would bring the word to life to us. We pray that you would challenge us in our thinking of you, that we think thoughts worthy of you, and that we lift you up as a great God and not bring you down into our manageable, understandable size. Now speak to us, Father, and we, your sons and your daughters, give careful attention to the proclamation of your word in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Pete Townsend, who was the guitarist for the rock band The Who, wrote a period piece in 1971 about the cultural revolution that was taking place at the time. And the song was, We Won't Get Fooled Again. You know that song? So we won't get fooled again. Anybody knows that song? Okay, okay thanks for three or four of you who know that song. At any rate, the song actually was written to be the finale for a rock opera that he was writing called Lifehouse. And the point of the song is he's cynically examining any revolution, but particularly the revolution that they're going through at the time, and he kind of concludes that ultimately it's pointless because after all the fighting, after all the struggle, the new regime pretty much is just like the old regime. It's just the same old thing replayed again. And so he gets down on his knees and prays he won't get fooled again. Well, next week we're going back to one service. And uh, I think a lot of us are really glad to be finally done with it. We're kind of sick of COVID, kind of sick of the regulations, uh, wearing masks and um, the social distancing and stuff. I never got sick the whole two years uh, through the whole time. So, but I have talked to people who said, in spite of being uh, vaccinated and booster shots, they had COVID two or three times. So the point is you can get flued again. So. And the, and the reason for that is that, uh, oh yeah, okay, thanks, just a second. <laughs> the reason for that, of course, is like with any virus, it changes, it mutates, and any immunity is only temporary. I mean, that's typical for viral epidemics. So in the year 165, there was a huge epidemic in the Roman world during the, the reign of Marcus Aurelius. And during this time, uh, this virus was especially lethal. It killed somewhere between a third and a fourth and a third the number of people in the Roman Empire. Medical historians suspect this is the first appearance of smallpox in, in the West. And during its 15-year epidemic, uh, the, the, the empire was devastated. Marcus Aurelius himself, who later died of smallpox, uh, wrote that during this time, um, there were caravans of carts and wagons hauling out the dead. Uh, people would typically, when there'd be an epidemic like that, whether it was a plague or in this case the epidemic of smallpox, they would try to get out of the city. They'd try to flee, find some isolation. But a lot of people didn't have that option. They couldn't flee. And so the next best thing was to try to distance themselves from any contact with people who were afflicted. And I mean, they realized right away that it was a contagious disease and they wanted to distance themselves from it. So um, whenever anybody got early symptoms, which in the case of smallpox came on quickly and, were, and ravaged the people, but as soon as there were symptoms, um, people would distance themselves from their loved ones, sometimes putting people who were sick out on the streets to die, leaving them in heaps on the streets because they were trying to distance themselves from the contagions. Uh, during the second smallpox epi epidemic, 
in the year 251, Bishop Dionysus was describing the conditions in Alexandria. He says, at the first onset of the disease, the pagans pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. As for action, Christians met the obligation to care for the sick rather than desert them, and thereby saved enormous number of lives. So nobody really knows where smallpox came from. Medical historians guess that it probably first appeared around 10,000 BC in northwest Africa, about the time that agricultural settlements were settling in. Further, they guessed that Egyptian traders took the smallpox disease with them to India. Uh, it was, it was uh, left unchecked for, for generations. It just keeps reappearing. During the 18th century, some 400,000 people died annually from smallpox. A third of those who survived went blind. Um, the symptoms of smallpox, which they called the speckled monster, uh, was known to suddenly appear uh, with devastating effects. Case fatality rates typically were anywhere between 20% and 60%. That was your chance of dying once you contracted smallpox. It was uh, even worse for infants. It was guessed that in London, the case fatality rate for infants approached 80%, and in Berlin, 98%. It was a, it was a difficult epidemic, a difficult disease to, to, to deal with, and they found that the most successful way of, of treating uh, the smallpox epidemic was through inoculation. Inoculation comes from the Latin word inoculare, uh, which is kind of nasty, but I need, to I need to relate it to you anyway. They would take a, a live smallpox virus from the pustule of an infected person and then they would deliberately insert it into the leg or arm of someone who was non-immune. And taking this matter from the right pustule uh, would increase their chances of survival. And it did. About If you did not get uh, inoculated, your chance of surviving was about one in five. If you got inoculated, besides it being really gross, your chances of surviving jumped to one in 50. But there was a better way that was soon to be discovered. Physicians in the 18th century noted that dairy maids would contract cowpox. And it looked quite similar to smallpox, only not as serious, because almost nobody died from it. And one uh, doctor by the name of Edward Jenner discovered that these dairy maids who had cowpox were immune from getting smallpox. And so he had the idea of deliberately infecting a non-sick person with cowpox the same way through inoculation by taking a ripe pustule from the cowpox-infected person and get, inserting it into a, a, a non-immune person. So in, 19, in 1796, uh, Jenner, this is, this is history, folks. <laughs> Jenner takes cowpox from this dairy maid by the name of Sarah Nelms, and he inserts it into the arm of uh, this eight-year-old boy named James Phipps, and, and no disease developed. So he was, he was immune from smallpox from being inoculated, or in this case, in, inserted the live virus of, cow, of cowpox. Uh, most of you who are anywhere near my age, between the, between the years of 1958 and 1977, received an injection 
in the, your arms and you, and you have a scar from that. There was the World Health Organization decided they were going to do this all out um, vaccination of everybody in the world. So between those years of 58 and 77, everybody got uh, uh, treatment for smallpox. And then in 1980, World Health Organization declared that smallpox had been eradicated, which makes it the only human disease ever to be eradicated. In spite of that fact, during that same century, 300 million people died of smallpox in the, 19th, in the 1900s. Now the word for Latin in, the word for cow in Latin is vaca, and the word for cow pox in Latin is vaccinia. So Jenner named his treatment vaccination uh, for this process of deliberately infecting somebody with a lesser disease so that they would be immune from the greater disease. And the whole concept is rather simple because once your body has seen this infection, it recognizes it and it makes you immune to the infection. So the reason a person doesn't get smallpox after they've had the vaccination is you've already had it. Your body sees that it's already, ha it's already happened. So you can avoid a, a serious, even fatal infection because you've already been infected. Now that whole long story is interesting to us only because in the text before us today, Paul has been warned over and over again that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's gonna face arrest, he's gonna face abuse, he's possibly even gonna die. And his friends tell him, don't do it, don't go there, because you've been warned that's what's waiting for you. But Paul is completely immune to it. He's completely protected because he realizes that there's going to be abuse and rejection and possibly even death, but he's ready for it because he's already been arrested. He's already had this encounter um, with Jesus when he was on his way to Damascus. Curiously, here is Paul on his way to Damascus to arrest and abuse other Christians, and yet when he encounters Jesus, his life is suddenly stopped. He's, his life is arrested by this encounter with Jesus. And let, in fact, in Galatians 2, Paul would declare, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by Christ who lives in me. I now live in the, uh, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul is declaring, I've already died. I've already been crucified. I've already been arrested by Christ. He's immune to whatever happens to him from here on out. Take your Bibles and turn with me where we left off last week from Acts 21, beginning in verse 37. Again, Paul has been warned by his friends, don't go up to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit's warned that what waits for you there is arrest and abuse. He gets to Jerusalem and the elders of the Jewish Christian church um, tell him, you know, there's there's a rumor that you've been telling people not to circumcise their, their children, to not observe the laws of Moses. And um, in order to show people that you're still a practicing Jew, though now saved by grace in Christ, we have the suggestion that you participate in a purification rite with these other guys. And once people see that you're engaged in this purification rite, they'll know that you have not abandon Judaism, that you're not teaching Jews to abandon Moses. And so Paul thinks that's a good idea. 
he joins these other men in this purification rite. He wants to show that he's, he's not against Moses. He's not a religious maniac. He, he's, he's, still, um, he's still Jewish. Now, while he's at the temple on the last day of the seven days of purification, while he's there at the temple, um, a variety erupts. Somebody recognizes Paul from his time in Ephesus. They say that Paul has brought Gentiles into the holy temple, thereby desecrating it and desecrating the holy name of God, and they just go nuts. The declaration is that here's Paul who's teaching the Jews everywhere not to follow Moses, not to follow the Jewish customs, and worse yet, here's Paul who's brought a Gentile into the temple. And so the place goes crazy. They drag him out of the temple courts and they start to beat him to death. And the only thing that saves Paul from getting beat to death by these holy Jews is that the Romans, the Gentiles, intercede. A very strong force of probably 200 soldiers come down from the Antonian fortress and they arrest Paul, scattering the riot. But now they need to find out what this was all about. So they've drugged Paul back up to the, the uh, steps. He's, he's under guard. Um, the crowd's just going nuts, wanting to have him dead. They hate Paul. They hate everything about Paul. They, they hate what he represents. They, they hate his music. They hate his furniture. They hate his family. They hate his friends. They hate his dog. They hate his clothes. They hate, they hate his haircut. Everything about Paul, they hate, and they want him dead at this point. Now here's Paul standing on the steps before, in front of this Roman garrison, and Paul asks that he would be permitted to give his apology. Now, apology doesn't mean saying, I'm sorry in this instance. It's a, it's a term meaning to give a, a logical defense for your actions or your beliefs. So Paul's about to give this bold defense, a very daring apology to the Jews that want to kill him. Dimitri Martin says that saying I'm sorry and saying I apologize mean the same thing, except at a funeral. All right, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them, in the Hebrew language. So the soldiers are taking Paul up the steps, and the, the, Paul says to the commander in very educated Greek, can I, can I speak? Would you give me permission to speak? May I say something? So the language in Judea at that time is Aramaic, not Hebrew. Very few people actually spoke Hebrew. It was a religious language. It was Aramaic. And Paul speaks to the commander in Greek, and the commander is immediately quite surprised. He's taken back by that. And so he says, do you speak Greek? Now, he doesn't mean, do you understand the Greek language? Because a lot of people could speak Greek. A lot of people understood the Greek language. What he's saying is he's surprised because he speaks good Greek. He speaks educated Greek, high Greek. And so the commander, thinking that he's somebody else, is surprised he speaks such good Greek. He assumes that Paul is Greek. And he, and he says, I, I'm I thought you were the Egyptian who three years ago led this revolt. Now remember, the Jewish people 
are a bunch of hotheads. And in 66, they actually do lead a revolt against Rome, which terminates in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But here, we're at about 57. It would have been three years earlier than that, so 54 or so, an Egyptian uh, leads a revolt against the, the Romans. Now, in your, if you're looking at the... Uh, what are we using now? If you're looking at the ESV, the word here, aren't you the one that led the 4,000 assassins? It's a borrowed term there. The word there in Greek is sicari. The sicari were these knife assassins. The sicari was a dagger. These knife assassins, better term here is terrorist. Uh, they, would, they would find their target in a crowd, and they would go up behind them, stab them a whole bunch of times, and then s sneak away through the crowd or stand back and act like they were totally surprised about what happened. So these were, the, it's a borrowed language. But what he really means is, aren't you the Egyptian terrorist that led this revolt against Rome three, uh, three years ago? Well, they had... This Egyptian had come up and said he was a prophet and that he was speaking for God. And he got these 4,000, Josephus inflates the number much higher than that, but about 4,000, that's what your text says, to assemble on the Mount of Olives. And he said, now you guys just wait, because at my command, the, the walls of Jerusalem will fall down and you will just rush in and take over the Roman garrison and thereby take control. And, and uh, the people were... were like I said, they were all stoked about it because they were just ripe for a revolt anyway. So he gets up there, and you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. The Roman procurator at the time was Felix. He sees these rebels, and he, he again, a strong force of Roman soldiers come down and just start wiping them out. They flee to the east, down into the desert, pursued by the Roman army who's just annihilating them. Hundreds of them are killed. Hundreds more are taken prisoner. Somehow the Egyptian prophet disappears. So the tribune in this case thinks Paul is that guy. And when he's recognized at the temple, the Jews are so furious at this imposter that they want to kill him for that. That's the conclusion that he's come to. But he's thrown off because Paul is speaking this high educated Greek. And Paul says, not just that, but I'm from a city of no ordinary means, not an ordinary city. I'm from Tarsus of Cilicia. Tarsus was a, a, a college town. It had a university that rivaled that of Alexandria and Athens. And of course, Paul growing up there, his family was from there, would have known this high Greek, this educated Greek, not the common Greek. And... Uh, so he identifies himself, and, and then he asks Lysias, the commander, if he could please have permission to speak to the people. Uh, he's, he, I don't think he has any false ideas that he's going to win them over. I mean, they're just that furious at him at this time. But he's committed that they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the truth. He doesn't think he's going to be successful, but he knows that he has to be a witness. And so he asked that he would speak to these people to recount to his countrymen his conversion, which has led him up to this point. Now we're at chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, 
being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds back to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that's appointed for you to do. And since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And I said, the God of our, he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear the voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul begins his apology, his defense, in a very biographical way. He's telling his story of how he came to Christ. Now I want you to notice two important things in his, in his defense here. First of all, he is defending both his motives and his actions. His motive is that he's not anti-Jewish. He's not set out to destroy Judaism. And his actions are that he's behaving not by his own choice, but because God had called him to. God had given him his, his marching orders. There's a very strange thing that's happening here as Paul's on the steps with these, surrounded by these Roman soldiers, um, speaking to a group of people who are just seething. They want, they want to, to, to they want Paul to be, to be killed, and he begins these, this defense in very conciliatory words. He calls them brothers and fathers, you know, kind of like what Stephen did back in Acts chapter 7. He reminds them he's a pure-blooded Jew. He's Jew through and through. He's zealous for the traditions of the Father. He understands why they're so lit. He's not blaming them for that. He was, he's been there too. He's emphasizing his zeal. He says, I'm like you, zealous for our faith. In fact, I was taught by Gamaliel. This is a name, one of the three greatest teachers Israel's ever produced, and everyone would know right away who Gamaliel was. He's very uh, conservative. They, they would have known that name. And he says, I was, I was a, a zealous for the traditions. I was educated by Gamaliel. I was right where you are. I get it. He's not ashamed of his Jewish background. He's not distancing himself from being a Jew. He recognizes that, that the Jews are the chosen people. God has acted to choose the Jews. In fact, he realizes that prior to uh, the coming of Christ, um, Judaism had all of the spiritual advantages, the people of the Jews. So Paul's not afraid to acknowledge that. He's not distancing himself from being Jewish. Now in Acts, we're told three times about this encounter that Paul has on his way to Damascus. 
in, in the New Testament, five times this encounter is related to us. Um, the first time, you know, Luke is just giving a third-person narrative about what actually happened. Um, the second time is what we're looking at right now, where Paul's recounting this event in his defense. And then the third time is when he speaks before Herod Agrippa. But isn't it interesting that Luke, in this one book, recounts this story three times? Why is it so important to Luke? I think because, one, Luke is writing an historical narrative about the early church. This is how things got started. This is what the, the apostles doing. Hence the name, the Acts of the Apostles. And so he's just simply relating what happened in history. But I think, more importantly, Luke's primary, con primarily concerned as he writes this book that Paul is recognized as a legitimate apostle. Now, Paul was not... Um, one of the 12 apostles that hung out with Jesus. Paul refers to himself as an apostle, as one who was untimely born. So Luke is trying to document the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship in that Jesus, now risen and ascended, is, is the one who's actually commissioned Paul to this point of apostleship. Uh, aside from Jesus, Paul is probably you know, the most significant uh, person in the Bible. He, he writes 13 of the books of the Bible. Uh, no theologian has ever surpassed his, his excellence. So that's the reason that Luke is recording that. Now, so there's five references. I've just given you three. The two, the two others are from uh, Philemon 3 and 1 Timothy 1. Significantly, in all five, every one of these accounts of Paul's conversion, the emphasis here is on the sovereign grace, the sovereign power, the electing power, the electing power of, of God, not, not on Paul, not on Paul's choices, not on Paul's achievements. So as Paul relates this dramatic conversion, how he went from being Christianity's biggest persecutor, most violent persecutor, to its greatest missionary, he appeals to them through this event where on his way to Damascus, he is stopped short by God. He is arrested by God. This is not a choice that Paul makes. He's not looking for something. God arrests him. Now, from a purely human point of view, it's rather remarkable that Paul would become a Christian at all. And so we'd have to ask ourselves, well, then how does Paul become converted? What explains that? What explains this dramatical, dramatical, not even a word, is it? Dramatic reversal of Paul's feelings towards Christ and towards Christianity. And the only answer can be that the Lord of glory, who was not a myth from early Christian uh, converts, the Lord of glory physically encounters him and arrests him at the, uh, on the road to Damascus. I mean, think about it. Paul is not considering at this point the truth claims of, of Christ. He's not on his way to Damascus thumbing through his Bible looking for how, in the Old Testament, how, how Christ fulfills these, these different uh, uh, prophecies. He's not looking for, for how Christ fulfills in his life and his death and his resurrection all of the ancient prophecies. He's not looking for Jesus at all. Paul's not unhappy with Judaism. He's not searching for another way. He's not uh, looking for enlightenment. Rather, he is militantly defending Judaism 
against a faith he sees as being heretical that needs to be wiped off the face of the planet. And that what happens is Christ arrests Paul in his tracks. And he's showing us here that everything about his conversion, everything about it is from God, and nothing about it of his conversion stems from Paul. I mean, God doesn't look down on, on Paul and see him as, here's a guy that's really ripe for salvation. Here's a guy that I could really use. Quite to the contrary, Paul acknowledges that he is a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. Two times in the passage we just read, verse 7 and verse 8, Jesus says that his persecution is against him personally. You're not just persecuting the Christian faith, you're persecuting me. So Paul doesn't deserve to be rewarded, he deserves judgment, and he fully acknowledges that. God doesn't look down at Paul and say, my, you know, if I, if I just had Paul, I'd have a great apostle in this, in this guy. You know, Paul, I'd, I'd really like you to be my apostle, but you know what, I'm not going to force you against your will. You know, I just, you need to exercise your free will and, and choose me. I'm just up there rooting for you, buddy. You know, there's many reasons why God would not choose Paul. And people say that the reason God chose Paul or the reason that God chose chooses anyone is that somehow he looks down through the corridor of time and he foresees those who would have faith in him, foreseeing ahead of time those who would have faith, who would choose him, he decides to choose them. Well, aside from being a lot of gobbledygook and nonsense, that's not what the Scripture says. If we're to base God's sovereign election on the fallen will of man, we're ignoring the very obvious biblical truth that God uh, must first do a work of grace in our heart in order for us to want to turn to Him. Our hearts would never choose Him. Yes, we do have free will. Apart from God's grace, we always exercise our free will to make ourselves the Lord of our life and reject God's rightful place. And it requires the intervention of the Holy Spirit first before we will exercise our free will, and then when God reveals himself to us, we are drawn to him as a moth to a flame. But our hearts would never choose him unless God's grace uh, first enlightens us. John 6, 44, no, no one would come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. John 6, 65, no one's able to come to Jesus uh, unless it's been granted to him by the Father. Uh, Luke 10, 22, um, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know, in several places throughout the Bible, we're told that the first cause of our salvation is God's choice of us, not our choice of Him. In Galatians 1.15, um, God set Him apart from His womb and called Him through His grace. Ephesians 1.46, He chose us. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us who believe. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.9 says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, 
but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And there's a lot more verses that we could go into. The thing is, if we deny the sovereign grace of God in choosing us, we ascribe to ourselves glory which is not ours to have. If there's anything about us that God looks down on and he says, well, here's someone worth saving. Here's someone that's got quality. You know, then we can have a reason to boast. We can say, if, if, if God does everything he can except I need to finish the work of salvation, we can say something about me contributed, contributed to my salvation. I, I'm just that smart. You know, I heard the gospel, and in, in my brilliance, I was smart enough to receive it, pat myself on the back. Or I had faith, and God saw that I would have faith, and so he chose me ahead of time knowing that I would have faith. But if my salvation rep, re, rests on anything other than God's sovereign choice, I am robbing glory, which only God is worthy of, and I'm attributing it to myself. I'm making God small. If our salvation rests not on my effort, but only on God who shows me mercy, Romans 9, 16, then he alone gets the praise and the glory. Verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple, and I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, Paul is describing something that happened to him about 20 years earlier. He's only been a Christian for a few years. But the point he's trying to make is even though he was a Christian and had been for several years by this point, He's there in Jerusalem at the temple worshiping God as a Jew. He's a Christian who's a Jew or a Jew who's a Christian. He wants the crowd to know that even though he trusted in Jesus, he's not against the Jewish customs. He's not against the Jewish rituals. But if you get saved as a Jew, you come by grace alone. Or if you get saved as a Gentile, you come by grace alone. These rituals don't add to my salvation. They're useful. They're part of my tradition, part of my culture, but that's not how I'm saved. And so Paul relates to them his very impressive vision that while he's there in the temple worshiping God, he has this remarkable encounter with Jesus in the temple. This, by the way, Paul never mentions this in any of his letters. I think Paul is really reticent to describe any spiritual experience that he's had. And he brings it up here only because it's a, a, of necessity. He's, he, he's, he, he wants Christian life to be founded on propositional truth, not emotional experiences. So he, he doesn't talk a lot about it. Verse 18, the Lord tells him, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. They're not going to receive your testimony here. And you know what? Paul's thinking, you know, if anybody, anywhere, anytime was ever the best qualified to speak to the Jewish people, it's me. I'm the best qualified person to speak to them. Nevertheless, Jesus has given him his marching orders. He's, he's, he's told him, get out of town. Get out of Dodge. Make haste. Verse 19, Paul's objecting. He's arguing with Jesus. He says, you know what? They know. 
how aggressive I was in persecuting all those who believed in you. They're going to listen to me. They, they know how I used to persecute the Christian. And my story is going to be powerful and persuasive. Uh, verse 20. And when, the, when Stephen was being martyred, his blood was being spilt, I was there cheering him on. If anybody has credibility with this group of people right here, right now, it would be me. Because I was right where they are. Lord, they're going to listen to me. They're going to listen to my story. Apparently, Jesus didn't agree with Paul. And tells him, yeah, whatever. Verse, where are we at? Verse 20. Uh, yeah, verse 21. Yeah. He says, yeah, whatever. Get out of town. You just leave. And I'm sending you here, from here, to the Gentiles. Now, this is not the first time Paul has heard that. Remember when he was back in Damascus on his way, he gets his orders, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Now this is reaffirming, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. His call is to preach to the Gentiles. And uh, Paul now is making his point. His point is, this wasn't my idea. You know, I'm not abandoning Judaism. I'm not cozying up to the Gentiles. This whole idea to preach to the Gentiles, this was God's plan. This was not my plan. This was God's assignment. This was not me volunteering for the job. So he's saying, I just am simply obeying what God commanded me to do, and this is what God commanded me to do. Go to the Gentiles. Verse 22, up to this word, up to this word, they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing their cloaks in the air and flinging dust into the air, nothing could have been more distressing and offensive to this group of people than to have Paul tell them that God was sending him to speak to Gentiles because of the Jewish unbelief. He was taking the Jewish gospel to Gentiles because of the Jews' unbelief. And they are furious at that suggestion. Now, Paul has been doing everything he can in this defense um, to show them just how Jewish he was. He, very Jewish language in his defense here. He, uh, he even relates the story of of Ananias, who was a very devout Jew, that all the other Jews would have recognized he's a devout Jew, and how this Ananias, the devout Jew, came to him speaking in very Jewish terms. The God of our fathers has chosen you to know and see his will and to see the righteous one. He's done everything he can to kind of bridge the gap between the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles and to the Jews and these this mob reacts so violently that Paul would even suggest that a Gentile can come to God without first coming through the law of Moses. The reality is God saves his people his own way, and there are no other options. God saves everyone through Christ alone. If you're a Gentile, you can come as a Gentile. You don't have to become a Jew, but you must come through Christ alone. If you're a Jew, you can stay a Jew. You don't have to abandon Judaism, but you come to God through Christ alone. Why do we have to come through Christ alone? Why is there not some other option, some other way? Because this is the way that God has provided it. 
If there was another way, would he have given his own son to die on the cross for you? There is but one way. It's through Jesus Christ, and everyone who gets saved comes through Jesus. So what we're talking about is not your religious opinion, though the rest of the world would like to make you think it is. That's just what you think. If it works for you, fine. But I think something else. It's not your religious opinion. It is a propositional truth. We're talking about reality. We're talking about truth. Verse 24. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. And when he had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you, for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man's a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So again, the commander has a problem. He needs to get down to the bottom of what's causing this riot. Paul is obviously at the center of it. The people are obviously torqued at him for something, but he, he doesn't know what it is. And so he decided he's going to find out through means of torture. He's going to beat the truth out of him. He's going to have Paul flogged, and it'll force him to, to confess what crime he's committed of that everybody's so lit about. And so they take Paul away. They're about to stretch him out to be uh, flogged. This is not, by the way, the Jewish flogging, which is bad enough. This is the Roman flogging, the flagellum. This is what Jesus had to endure right before the cross. They'd have a whip that had pieces of bone and metal and glass on the end of several uh, lashes, and they would start beating the guy. When they pulled back with the whip, it would tear skin off. Frequently, the victim didn't survive the interrogation. And, and of course, we, we know that Jesus was beaten so badly, he couldn't carry his, the patibulum, the cross, uh, with him. So uh, Paul is uh, about to get beat through this Roman flagellum, and he says, is it, is it legal for you to, to uh, flog a Roman citizen? He could have just stopped right there, because no, it was under no circumstances was it legal to flog a Roman citizen. In fact, it was not e even legal to have him bound. Remember at the end of the text there, it says that he was afraid because he had bound Roman who bound Paul, who was a Roman citizen. Not legal to bind a Roman citizen who has not been accused of a crime. So they obviously knew he had not been convicted of a crime, and what they're about to do was so serious that if you, as a Roman officer, submitted a Roman citizen to the flagellum, you would be executed. That's how seriously they guarded this. So Paul asked, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been convicted and they are backing up in a big hurry. So the, the officer, Claudius Lysias, comes to Paul and says, is that true? Are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, I am. And the commander is quite taken back by that because he says, I had to pay a great sum in order for me to become a Roman citizen. Technically, there's only one way to become a Roman citizen. Well, two ways. You either were born a Roman citizen or by some meritorious deed that was on the on the order of a Congressional Medal of Honor, some meritorious deed, you could be granted Roman citizenship. You technically couldn't buy 
a Roman citizenship. But more technically, it was sometimes done by bribery, not by, not by buying. There wasn't a fixed price. And so here's this guy named Lysias. He's evidently Greek by his name. And during the reign of Claudius, Claudius actually did take a lot of bribes because he needed the money. He um, sold, in air quotes here, he sold Roman citizenship for a, a significant amount of money. Now, the commander sees Paul, and picture him. You know, he's, he's this itinerant preacher. He's wearing traveling clothes. He's obviously not rich. And Claudius Lysias looks at him and says, you know what? I don't know how you think you managed to pay enough to get a Roman citizenship. It cost a lot. You know, I had to pay a lot to get my Roman citizenship. And Paul says, yeah, but I was born a Roman citizen. In order to be born a Roman citizen, both your parents had to be Roman citizens. So Paul's father, or perhaps his grandfather, back in Tarsus of Cilicia, uh, had done some meritorious deed for Rome and been awarded Roman citizenship. So obviously being born a Roman citizen was a step up over buying your way in. Paul now accepts the the situation as God ordained it. He's facing this difficulty of being arrested and rejected by his people, and he accepts it very calmly because he realizes this is God's will for him. This is the, this is the path God has laid out for him. And so that's why he was able to tell all those who were trying to dissuade him from coming to Jerusalem, he would say, I, I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Christ. He, he, he exalts the Lord. And in the, his defense to the crowd then is not on his personal credentials or his achievements, but what God had accomplished in his life. He, again, Paul doesn't expect to be successful in this, in this crowd, but they needed to hear the message. He doesn't really expect any of them are going to change their mind, um, but he wants them to know that he, just being zealous uh, and godly, as they are and he was, is, is not enough. And so he decides, in spite of the fact that, you know, they're not going to change their mind, he's committed to the cause that he has to at least be a witness. He has to tell about what happened to him. See, that's the same charge that we are all given. You are not charged to make converts. You are charged to be a witness. And a witness just simply relates... What's happened to them? As the song that um, Charlie opened up with, the, the first song, I, I once was blind and now I see. That's a witness. A witness just simply says um, what he has experienced. See, there's nothing you could say. There's no power in your persuasion that's going to convert somebody. The power is in the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And so the witness is just simply relating what he's experienced. So you don't have to be a pastor or a seminary professor. You don't have to be a missionary, an elder, a teacher. You don't have to be a janitor to just tell how your life has been changed by your encounter with Jesus. And that's all that, that Paul is doing here. Because let's back up the, the, the truck just a little bit. Paul does not want to be a Christian. He's not looking to be a Christian. He's not examining the truth claims of Christ at this point. That's the very last thing that he wants to do. He's not looking for salvation. 
He's not looking for righteousness. He's not looking for acceptance to God. He receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, not because he wanted to, but because he was arrested by Christ and confronted with the truth. And the truth is that Jesus, whom he knew to have been executed and buried, is now alive and in heaven and reigns with God as God. Jesus is Lord of heaven. He is Lord of creation. And the only conclusion that you can come to is, therefore, he is rightfully Lord of my life too. And that's what Paul was testifying to. And I'm glad that things are returning to normal after two long years of COVID isolation. And I'm sick to death of masks. And I'm really weary of these last two weeks of flattening the curb. And I'm really suspicious of all of the dangerous variants, you know, not just Omicron and Delta, but Delta AY 4.2 and Omicron BA.2. I'm ready to get back to life as we knew it. And I get down on my knees and pray we don't get flued again. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for keeping us together as a church through all of this. There's been some hardships and there's hard feelings. I pray that you bring healing to our church and restoration of our love and affinity towards one another. I pray, God, that we can concentrate on that which brings you glory, which gives you praise, that we can focus away from ourselves, that we can declare to one another and to this world what a great mighty, all-powerful God who is all-loving and gracious and forgiving. Father, help us to be concentrated on our testimony and not on our hurts. Speak to us, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.